This is a Federal News Network podcast. The U.S. Agency for International Development recently reestablished a group called the Advisory Committee on Voluntary Foreign Aid. It was chartered back in 1946. Now it's back to work under a fresh two-year renewal. Joining me with more about how it works, the Senior Vice President at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and Chairman of the Advisory Committee, Nisha Biswal. Ms. Biswal, good to have you on. Hey, Tom. Thanks for having me on. And you're not just a Chamber of Commerce person who's interested in foreign aid. You have acted as a federal operator, right, in the area of diplomacy and foreign aid. Tell us about yourself a little bit. Oh, sure. Well, you know, before I came to the chamber in 2017, I had a good 20 years in the federal government, both in Congress, uh, working on appropriations and on the authorizing committees in the House, and then at USAID a couple of times, and then at the State Department. So in all of those iterations, I was very much a part of um, how USAID advances the core interests and foreign policy objectives of the United States. And so it's an honor to be here in this new capacity as the uh, chair of the ACFA committee. And tell us more about the committee. What is its charter? What does it provide to USAID? Well, so ACFA, as you noted earlier, Tom, was set up even before we had a USAID as a means of bringing advice and insight into our foreign assistance to the U.S. government. Since the uh, creation of USAID, ACFA has been an advisor to the agency and to the administrator on uh, key areas and priorities, as well as uh, management reforms that the agency has undertaken. And every aid administrator kind of reconvenes that, reestablishes that committee. And so under the leadership of the current aid administrator, Ambassador Samantha Power, we have reconstituted ACFA, and we have, uh, I think, one of the most uh, interesting, engaging, diverse ACFA committees in our in our history. Tell us more about the committee makeup. I believe it's limited to 30 by the charter, by law. So you've got to pick carefully, I guess. Indeed. And, and we do have 30 members. And I'm proud to say that we have such a broad um, and diverse cross-section of perspectives. We have private sector represented through representatives uh, from companies like Starbucks on sustainability or Microsoft or PepsiCo, which works so much on cold chain and, and food agricultural supply chains. We have uh, members of um, our implementation or NGO community that work on democracy and governance or anti-corruption or combating disinformation. We have development implementers uh, from both the U.S. PVO community, private voluntary organizations, and from our implementing partners overseas. One of the key areas that I think the administrator has been focused on has been on inclusive development and focusing on localization, making sure that the voices of our uh, our local partners are elevated. And so we have a number of ACFA members who represent local perspectives in different regions. And just as a detail, I noticed there's someone from the International Republican Institute and somebody from the National Democratic Institute. So there's a little bipartisan quality, it sounds like, to the committee as well. Well, Tom, aid, USAID has always been supported in a very bipartisan way. 
And so ACFA has always had voices on it that represent, you know, the the spectrum of political opinion as well as developmental opinion. And I will say on that note, the aid administrator was recently recognized at the U.S. Global Leadership Campaign alongside George Bush, President George Bush and Mitch McConnell. And it was a very bipartisan validation of the important work of USAID. We're speaking with Nisha Biswal. She's senior vice president at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and chairman of USAID's Advisory Committee on Voluntary Foreign Aid. And by the way, voluntary, how does that fit in to the idea? Well, it's voluntary in that members of the committee volunteer their time and expertise. There's no compensation involved. And there's no coercion involved either. We're all very, very honored to serve. And I'm interested in what types of management recommendations that the committee might have for USAID, because USAID operates in a difficult environment. They give billions of foreign aid every year, but it comes through local organizations that might be in countries that otherwise are in pretty rough shape. And so there are difficulties in accountability of funding, ensuring that the agents locally are acting in a way that reflect the values of the agency and the laws of the United States. So it's a complicated management chain. Does the committee get into looking at ways to making sure that everything happens the way it should happen? We do. So the way that we have set up the committee this this time, and we just had, in fact, one public meeting on December second, where we announced that we're going to be setting up four working groups. And these working groups will focus on some of these key areas that we want to dive deeper into and provide recommendations to the agency. Those include uh, democracy and anti-corruption, particularly looking at misinformation and disinformation and as well as how we provide support to democratic bright spots. We have another working group on climate change and food security and the nexus between the two, particularly as we are facing twin crises of accelerating climate change and the impact on food uh, um, and agriculture and food insecurity. I mentioned inclusive development with a focus on localization, equity, and inclusion. And then the last working group, and one that I'm particularly um, going to play a key role on, is on private sector engagement. As we look at a very daunting set of global challenges, we also know that public sector support, USAID support in and of itself is insufficient, and that we have to leverage private sector resources and capabilities. And so the private sector engagement will be an opportunity to see how we maximize and leverage the private sector to advance development objectives. Right. That development idea, I guess, is really important because you don't want nations, say the Africa summit just took place here in Washington, for example, you don't want them to be forever colonial dependent in effect, not in in legal structure, but you want development to happen so that countries self-ignite. Isn't that really the ultimate goal here? Absolutely. And so what USAID focuses on are the ways in which we can unleash growth in a way that's inclusive, that's sustainable, that is addressing all of the different aspects of citizen participation in the country's growth and governance. And just on that theme of Africa as kind of a 
maybe a, a metaphor for the greater world that USAID engages in, and the State Department for that matter. And you have China investing huge amounts of money in development in Africa. They want the minerals there. They want whatever it is that Africa has to offer. Do you feel that USAID work, State Department work, and generally the United States is up to the challenge of, just to put it crudely, keeping Africa out of China's hands? Yeah, I mean, I think I would put it a little bit differently, which is that the principles that guide our development work are transparency. You know, we're very, very um, strong that our assistance is done in a transparent way, in an inclusive way, in a way that emphasizes the needs, the priorities of the countries in which we operate, and that we um, make sure that um, we're following the um, international standards uh, around whether it's human rights, whether it's uh, governance, et cetera, making sure that we're looking at marginalized groups, at gender in, imbalances, et cetera. Uh, the extent to which resources are provided by other countries, uh, we hope that these standards that we put in place will help the recipient countries demand the same kinds of standards on other assistance that they receive. All right. And, uh, well, let's hope so. And then just getting down to some of the brass tacks here before we wind up, the committees and the subcommittees meet and talk about these different ideas, anti-corruption, climate change, inclusive development, and private sector engagement. What form, then, do the recommendations take when you deliver them to the staff at USAID and the political leadership? And do they listen to you? Absolutely. So uh, we're just starting the work of this particular committee. Um, it was reconstituted earlier this year, and the main focus of our work will be over the next two years. What I expect is that we will both have ongoing influence through the committee meetings with the administrator and with key USAID staff, as well as a body of work and some recommendations that we will be able to put forward in the course of these next two years and those recommendations, I suspect, will also be taken on board uh, by uh, the leadership of the agency and will be made available publicly as well. And by the way, for people that serve on this or many of the other dozens of federal advisory committees that are throughout the government, in general, do people need some sort of dispensation from their home organizations to spend time on this? Very often you find that sometimes these external activities take up as much time as the job where the person works primarily and gets paid from? I believe that um, every member of the committee comes in with an understanding of the commitment that they are making of their time and expertise, and particularly as they take on leadership roles, as I am on chairing ACVA or the co-chairs of all of our working groups. And that those are conversations that they have had internally. Most of the people who are on this play leadership roles in the organizations um, that they are part of. And I think it's a win-win situation as well, right? Because in playing that leadership role and serving in that capacity, you're also able to have better insight and understanding of 
how the agency works. And so it's a, it's a true privilege to be in that position of service. Nisha Biswal is Senior Vice President of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and Chairman of the USAID's Advisory Committee on Voluntary Foreign Aid. Thanks so much for joining me. Tom, it was a pleasure to be here. And we'll post this interview together with a list of all of the committee members at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Sean Ferguson, Senior Vice President of Government Relations and Chief of Staff to the Office of the Chairman at the Special Olympics, joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss the importance of leadership, inclusion, and community building. To learn more about how you can get involved with the Special Olympics in your community, visit specialolympics.org slash get dash involved. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. What are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned working with that community? Oh, uh, yeah, almost, uh, Shane, it's almost immeasurable. The things I've learned since I've been with Special Olympics. I uh, One of the things that drew me to Special Olympics uh, when I made the move over from, from the NFL uh, was that my mother, my grandmother, my aunt all took care of, of people with intellectual disabilities and, and, and physical disabilities as well. So all of my life, I was uh, interacting and around um, usually usually young people, but also adults with disabilities. And so I, I knew that I knew that work a bit. You know, they they basically were in d- direct care. And and I will say, and on a, obviously we'll say about my my family, my mother, my aunt, my grandmother, they're saints. Uh, but uh, the the men and women that do take care of people with uh, pr- profound disabilities are are really um, you know we we can't do enough to salute them. Um, they're they're really heroes, and um, so I was I was drawn when I I and I just saw that you know Special Olympics was looking for someone, and I thought well you know take a look at it and see, see you know throw uh, send in my information, and lo and behold I I, I get hired, and um, I learn uh, every day almost something from especially from our athletes. Uh, we're blessed to have a number of athletes that work here in our office in Washington D.C. And, you know, uh, Terrell, who, who works in, in our mailroom, who comes by with packages and deliveries, uh, if you're having a day that's, you know, getting away from you and you, you <laughs> coffee hasn't kicked in, but Terrell comes by, always happy, always enthused, uh, has, a, has a good story, like, it can just turn a day around for you. And, and, and you think of, I, I, you know, so often when you'll walk away, I'll be like, you know, whatever was bothering me or whatever is you know, stressing me out and come on, you know, like, look at, look at Terrell, like he, he, he faces everything with optimism. And, and, and I've seen that also in our going to competitions in throughout the United States and globally, you see people who have had everything stacked against them. You know, their parents, when they were born, were often told this is a tragedy and you should, you should, you know, send your, this child away. Don't, don't, you know, and, and kind of forget about them, Get, turn them over to the state or, or wherever. And, and, you know, that, you know, just kind of watch, watch your hands of it. Um, and, and, and in, in these cases, the parents didn't do that, thankfully. Um, and, but they've still faced enormous challenges, you know, and, but you see them out competing on the basketball courts or the football fields or swimming and, uh, and, and, 
you know, besting their times from, from their last competition. And they're so committed and just keep fighting through all the obstacles that they've had in front of them that are not just on the sports field, but also in growing up and finding education and finding groups to be part of and trying to find jobs. And, and, and I've seen so much perseverance and grit uh, from the athletes of special Olympics that I, I, Tim Triver, my boss, the chairman uh, says all the time, and I couldn't agree with him more. uh, We get more than we give. Uh, working with Special Olympics, it, you know, we, and thank you for your very kind words about the work I do and we do, but but we're the lucky ones. We, those of us that work here are the lucky ones because I I said to someone the other day, you know, the things that I've been able to see and experience with athletes, you just don't get to do that anywhere. That that you know, it's a and it's so unique and it's so uh, joyful and and uh, I mean, we work hard and you know, we we're up against you know the things that nonprofits are up against and you know the you know the issues of the day. But uh, man, you see, it, it, and 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 the inclusion and the at Special Olympics, no one's excluded. You know, no, right. no one's excluded. Yeah. Everyone is equal at Special Olympics. It, and, you know, in a country that's quite divided on so many lines, politically and uh, socially, uh, economically, race and uh, sexual orientation and whatnot. But you go to Special Olympics and everyone's involved. Everyone's welcome. Everyone's equal. And I've learned that it's a model for our country and for our world. Uh, I, I just think that that if if people were involved in Special Olympics in experience the power of Special Olympics for themselves, I, I, I can't imagine that one help our country and help our world um, to experience that true inclusion and acceptance of difference. How, how do we get, how can listeners get involved in Special Olympics? Ways to get involved? Uh, tons of ways. So uh, volunteers, obviously, coaches, officials, um, and, and the thing that, that, that uh, Tim Triver has done uh, and really pushed in the years that he's been chairman is the unified sports model that, that I mentioned earlier, um, where people and, and it doesn't have to be. Uh, it's not just school age. It's it's, uh, you know, we say nine to ninety nine or uh, year old uh, folks uh, that play on teams, uh, bowl together, golf together, play soccer, basketball together. Uh, people with and without intellectual disabilities competing on teams together. Um, and that is, I, I think, when you when you go back to the founding of, of our organization, what Mrs. Tri- Mrs. Shriver was trying to do uh, was to, to uh, create inclusion opportunities for people with intellectual disabilities. And you see it at these unified sports events where people with and without are playing together. We still have traditional uh, teams where it's all people with intellectual disabilities competing with other uh, teams, all intellectual disabilities. But this model of inclusive sports and inclusive leadership programs and whatnot, I think is truly revolutionizing and changing the way people see uh, others with intellectual disabilities. That's just like, I mean, that's what we that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to bring people together and bridge difference and, and, and celebrate differences and that our athletes, man, are some of the grittiest people that you will meet. And, and, uh, and there's a lot to learn.
from our athletes and playing sports with them and interacting is, is how you'll learn it. Check us out, uh, you know, uh, specialolympics.org on, on our website. Uh, that will link you to your local program. You can follow through the, the clicks of how to get involved and where what's closest to you. You'll enjoy it. I can promise you that. Well, thank you very much, Sean. And, and to everybody listening, I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and we'll uh, talk to you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.